Well, I'm excited. I, I got asked if I would be willing to jump in this week and into this series in the parables. And so Todd asked me what I want to do. And I'm like, I want to do Matthew 7, 1 through 6. And he goes, are they, is that actually parables? And I'm like, sure. Because it's just what I wanted to teach. Um, but they are. They are parabolic. And uh, Jesus using uh, what he often used in his teachings, these, these beautiful kind of uh, picture stories to help us understand or grasp concepts, theological concepts. I mean, Jesus is the greatest the greatest instructor on preaching because what he constantly did was connect our our understanding of what relationship with God should look like um, through what it means to be human. And so he used very human illustrations and, and often very hyper in a hyperbolic way that there shows this kind of beautiful sense of humor as well. Uh, and, and in Matthew 7, um, and I, I'm really passionate about this subject. I address it a lot in my book, um, which comes out in February, which is just understanding in the age of victimization, hyper-victimization, um, as one of my favorite philosophers, Rene Girard, uh, he, in his book, The Scapegoat, he says the universe swarms with scapegoats. It goes all the way back to that primordial word in the garden. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. Uh, and what was the woman's response? It wasn't me. It was the serpent who deceived me. It's fascinating to me that the only honest person in that story is Satan. He's the only one who's like, yep, I did it. Like, he didn't even say it. He didn't even have to say anything. He's like, you know what I am. I'm a liar. Um, <laughs> but, the, but it's the, God's beloved center of his creation um, are immediately, sin enters in, and the first thing that happens is deflection. The problem isn't me, it's them. We just came out of this insane season of COVID and the racial tensions and political unrest. And I mean, and everybody's got a scapegoat. And I felt like one of the most exhausting aspects of being, I just realized there's a whole people over here too. I'm so sorry. This is very uncomfortable. I just, you guys are just looking at my, the backside. That's a very, Chesterton said that's a very awkward thing to hear someone talk to you with their back turned to you. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, this isn't, this is a bad layout here. We need to, <laughs> I'm not a charismatic preacher. I'm charismatic with a seatbelt. And so this is, um, but when you think about the, the reality of what we just went through, I mean, I spent two years essentially being a, um, like a referee between, between conservative parents and their progressive children in our church. They, their children got saved at Door of Hope, and then the parents are like, awesome, our kids are finally on fire for Jesus, and so we're going to go there too. And then COVID hits, and all hell breaks loose. And next thing you know, I've got mom coming to me, and she's like, I think my son's Antifa. <laughs> and, then the, and then the kids in my office the next week is like, I think my mom's a Nazi. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm positive that your son's not Antifa. I don't even know what Antifa is. I think it's just kids that wear black and do bad things in my city. Um, and I know that your mom's not a Nazi. <laughs> um, so what is, what's going on? But this, you know, all joking aside, it has wreaked havoc in the church because it has moved us from the gospel of grace to the gospel of judgment. And judgment, man... I mean, I feel like Jesus is pretty clear, and yet the most judgmental realities I have experienced in the last 20 years of my life have not been from those outside of the church. It's been from within the church, where the church becomes a place where we are protecting ourselves from those evil people out there, when the fact is, is that we are the ones that do the most damage to our communities because of our tendency to move from grace to um, what I would call behavior modification, that it be, our Christian lives is not about who we know, it's about what we do to prove our, our worthiness, our enoughness, as my friend David Zoll calls it. And it shows the natural tendency or the default setting toward idolatry. You know, John Calvin, one of the, <laughs> one of the things I, I love that he said is that the human heart is an idol factory. You pull one idol out and just pulls up another one. And one of the greatest idols that we can be confronted with, and actually the greatest enemy we will ever be confronted with, because if Satan died today, you're going to keep sinning tomorrow. You are the worst enemy you will ever face. At least that's true for me. And so I want to 
deal with Jesus's powerful parabolic illustration of both, and I think they're connected. I think he shows us two different kinds of judgment, um, a judgment that creates blindness and a judgment that flows from, in, or judgment that brings insight. And the first is his, why do you look at the speck, or the sliver in your brother or sister's eye, when you haven't even considered the fact that there's a log in your own eye, a plank in your eye? The other is, don't give what is holy. I always thought, I never connected these two. I was like, it seems like he's really jumping themes here, because all of a sudden he goes from that to, do not give what is holy to the dogs, um, you know, or cast your pearls before swine, lest they basically take it from you and then tear you apart, <laughs> reject you and tear you apart. And I think that, that actually the whole passage is dealing with judgment, but it's focusing on it from two different angles. Judgment that comes from self-righteousness versus judgment or what I would just simply call discernment the ability to see a thing as it is and understand what it is that we're getting into. Because remember, Jesus himself was torn apart <laughs> by the world that he loved. So it kind of gives us some pretty powerful insight into what then are the swine and the dogs. And I would argue that it's everybody. Um, and this is the whole reason Jesus came, which is why we need the gospel of grace. The more we understand what we have been saved from, the less likely we are going to beat on the heads of those that are broken around us. Our tendency toward what I call selective sanctification is that we, we have this kind of, these, these parameters that we create to make ourselves feel okay in the world. Um, and then we judge people based upon our own parameters, which makes us blind to all these other things that we're doing wrong. Um, and that's why I think that the most encouraging thing that I could say to you today is that you're not a bigger failure than God already knows you are. It's really good news. It's like, seriously, just take that home. We probably could be done right now. Um, and just be grateful that the cross of Jesus meets people in their lowest point. I always say, no matter how deep a hole you have dug yourself, Jesus' love goes deeper still. So I had this moment. I called my dad once. <laughs> we were talking. And he was, he was getting close to coming to faith. And uh, I remember asking him, I said, Dad, do you believe in hell? And he goes, he goes, yeah, yeah, I do. And I was really surprised. I'm like, really? And I'm like, why do you say that? And he goes, because I know so many people that should go there. <laughs> and then I said, well, what about you? And he goes, Joshua, I'm a good person. And I think that this is that, that picture that I'm, I'm speaking of. We always, we always have this capacity um, for judgment toward others in simultaneous justification of ourselves. And it's deeply troubling. The potential to reduce us to nothing more than the effects of another's cause. That we're, that we're just the product of other people's problems. But the fact is, is that you can't get away from the problems of the world because wherever you are, part of the problem remains. Because wherever a human being is on this side of eternity, sin continues to be a problem. Even though sin has been dealt with once and for all in Jesus, it doesn't mean that even for us as Christians, that forgiven sins can't still wreak absolute havoc in our lives. We see that all the time. Christians make horrible decisions. Pastors blow up their ministries, have affairs, steal money. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love them. It doesn't mean that they're not Christians. It just means that sin is at play. And when we forget that we are sinners, that is where we begin to enter into that self, kind of self-righteous justification where we feel right in saying that this person's wrong and that person's wrong and this person's unacceptable. And I'm not talking about cheap grace. Grace is never cheap, but it is always free and it is always unfair. And so I think that this is super important for us to keep our minds around. Now, I want to um, give to you a verse that I think is super important, then we're going to jump in the text. James chapter 2, which is often viewed by those, um, those folks that feel very passionately about grace, which I would be one of them, except I disagree with them on this, that James is a, is a book that's suspect. Martin Luther wanted it pulled from the Bible. Um, and I've, I've actually met other, I actually have met a few Lutheran pastors that kind of agree with him. But it's fascinating to me because I think James is grace-filled, and one of the most powerful passages on grace is actually found in James, uh, which the, the, the accusation is that James focuses on a works-based salvation, which is not true. He's just saying that the outworking, the, a faith that works is a, um, is a, a faith 
a radical disposition of trust toward Jesus that allows Jesus to be Jesus in and through us in such a way that his life, even though it's dimly, um, is coming through, that we begin to, our, our lives do change due to the fact that Jesus is now within us. It's called sanctification. It's called the Holy Spirit working in and through us as we surrender daily to him. It's not I who am doing the work. Paul says, it's not I, it's, it's Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. Um, and, it, and it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, through me. This is the key to understanding Romans 7. And it went, who's going to save me from this body of death? Jesus. He's like, I keep doing the things that I don't want to do. Why, do I, why does that happen? What does he say at the very end of his life? This is a worthy saying of worth remembrance, Timothy. Christ Jesus came into this world to die for sinners of who I am chief, not whom I was chief. Uh, he understood. I, I would argue that the closer we get to Jesus, the more fully we will understand how desperately we need his grace every day because everything we do is mixture. That's one of the key themes in my book is the law, what I call the law of mixture, that even as born-again Christians with the spirit within us, we still have that old nature that's at play. So everything I do when I preach, um, I'm, I may be preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, but there is still that broken side of me that's wondering if you like me or if you think my white outfit's too much or if I look like a cult leader or... Is, are my pants sheer? Um, you know, all kinds of concerns. Um, uh, and, and this is one of the things that keeps us humble is when we speak that out, the power over that reality is just being honest about it um, instead of continually presenting to a world an ideal that we ourselves can't keep. Um, and, and this church is unique. I mean, I showed up last Sunday to lead worship and James was practically naked and, and Right before he preached, you were just wearing, sh you were dripping wet. You went swimming five minutes before you preached. That's weird. <laughs> See, this is what we call judgment that really has no basis in reality. So it's really harmless because um, I only tease people that I love, um, which is a way of excusing my ability to judge quickly. Um, so <laughs> here's the passage in James. Um, so you can tell that I've been painting for 15 hours a day for the last five days. I'm just like, I'm just going to give you every thought that comes into my mind right now without a filter. Um, I, I have a very underdeveloped frontal lobe. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? It's not Torah. The law of liberty is grace. It's the gospel. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged under that understand what you have been forgiven of, is essentially what he's saying. And then he goes, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That is not the proclamation of our day. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So let's jump into this text. I want you to just hold that thought. You have to hold that thought in tension. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When God declared who he was to Moses, he didn't say, the Lord, the Lord, your God, holy. He didn't say the Lord, the Lord, your God, uh, just. He said compassionate, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, um, and willing to forgive. <laughs> I mean, this is the power of the God that we serve. Grace is, the gracious God is consistent. Jesus is a revelation of the same God. It's not, he's not a different God than the God of the Old Testament. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I am the full and final word from God to the world. <laughs> and you can trust that if, if you like what you see in me, that this is what you can trust, that this is what God is like, because I am one with him. <laughs> I mean, this is the power of the gospel and why there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. So here, here it is. Jesus says to his disciples, now keep in mind the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of confusion around the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and and it's, I think it's often one of the most abused texts actually in church history because of, it, because of the ethics, the strong ethics in it. Um, our, our desire to, um, to move ourselves toward things that we must do to prove our worth to Jesus. And, and I think that Jesus has a very specific intent um, in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is not is the primary focus or purpose is not to make you no longer lust or to no longer, uh, to no longer be a murderer. Because he's basically, what he's doing is he's doubling down on the law in such a way to drive us to a place of absolute despair. I can't do this. That's the point. 
we go back to the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I always think it's fascinating when I meet friends, like, like you know, I'm a pacifist because of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm like, great, that's awesome. But here's the problem. You're still a murderer every day. Um, and and this, I'll just give you an example of how much I judge. I'm driving down, down the mountain from Arrowhead in Todd's car, which is older. Um, and... Uh, and I have an, a weird aversion. I have a weird aversion to law because um, I believe in the gospel of grace. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm going maybe, I don't know, maybe 60 miles an hour <laughs> down that windy road, which is super fun in that car because it shakes when you brake. Um, and, uh, and there was a woman driving in a little like minivan. I promise it didn't say like baby on board or anything. That would be horrible of me. Um, <laughs> it's still horrible of me. So I'm like tailgating her and yelling. I'm like super tired. I'm like, come on, stupid Californians can't drive. She's driving the speed limit. I'm going 60 like a madman in an old car that I don't even know very well. And, I'm, and yet the problem is her. There's that, that point of deflection. And I was, I was immediately struck with Jesus' words. I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother or sister is committed murder. And I'm like, dang it, you got me again, Jesus. I just killed her. <laughs> she's dead in my head. And then I whipped around her and I said, go faster. And then I'm like, and forgive me. Jesus loves you. Go in peace. <laughs> I always feel like I have to reverse it. Go in peace and I will sin no longer. <laughs> but, but I mean, this is the nature. It's so funny, our selective sanctification, how we justify in our minds this behavior. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 7? He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Why would he say that? Because he knows that human beings are judgmental. He actually knows, he's telling you to not do something he knows you're gonna do, because it's the whole reason he came. That's the, that's the point. It's like, hey, you may not be out killing people. Great, you're a pacifist, but you kill people every time you get mad at them, according to Jesus, which tells me that the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is an impossible ethic that only he who is the perfect fulfiller of the law can fulfill through us, and which is really summed up in one word, love. Um, and really, I would say the only tangible evidence of who we are as Christians is how well we love, not just the people that love us. Jesus said, what good is that? But it's our ability to love our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Anyone who is behind us, next to us, before us at any given moment in any given day. It's the homeless man on the street. It's the belligerent um, drunk. It's, it's any human being you come in contact with. These are the people that Jesus came to die for. These are the people that Jesus loves, and we have to understand our own brokenness because it'll allow us to enter in humility into their lives. It's our judgment actually, um, I think, diminishes the image of Christ in us, and actually it diminishes our humanity. I mean, have you met that, like really, uh, with, especially within the church, the ugliness of judgmental, how it kind of, it robs the person of their humanity. There's like a, it, it, it actually takes away the depth of character. And so Jesus says, do not judge. This is the theme. Don't be judged or you too will be judged. He's, and what he's saying is that, listen, I am the teacher. Jesus is teaching his disciples, those who have left all to follow him. It says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, you don't teach a crowd in a seated position on a mountain above them. That's him getting away from the crowd. But at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the powerful thing is that when people gather around Jesus, the crowd followed. And at the, end of the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, now the crowds gather around like, what's he saying? And, it's, and it says they were amazed for he spoke as one who spoke with authority. I think it's one of the most beautiful pictures of why we should gather as a church. That's a side note that has nothing to do with my message. I just think it's a very important point. Um, we, we need to be gathering together. We need one another. Uh, so here is the picture. Love has neither time nor opportunity for judgment. And, and if you guys weren't here last week, I really encourage you to listen to James's message last week on, on love, because it's very powerful. Because love is a word that's so overused that we, we've, we, we've forgotten it, that it's actually the center of everything. And it can seem like, you know, all you need is love. Yes, there's, there's, there's many ways that the, the concept of agape love is diminished in the world. But that doesn't mean that we should abandon it, because it is the center of our belief system, is that the thing that brings conviction to the world and to, uh, that it needs Jesus is not our judgment, but
but it's our kindness. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And so this is what Jesus goes on to say. So if the theme is don't judge, but actually function in grace, and here's the thing with grace, it's always unfair, then we have to understand, first of all, that judgment brings blindness. In verses three and five, through five, here's the first parabolic statement. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Judgment blinds, love illuminates. And I, I think it's, it's a very sad thing because I have heard too many preachers, preachers that I respect, um, who begin to believe their own press. They, they get influence. I'm kind of convinced, actually, that fame is something that human beings were never intended for. Um, and, and, and I'm very leery. I'm, I'm sort of the king. We all want it, but we don't know what it is, but we know it when we see it. It's impossible to define. Uh, and yet we also see that almost everyone that gets famous, it usually makes their life miserable. And yet we're like, I think I still want that. Um, and, it, and it comes from a perverted desire that actually has its root in, a, in a, very, a very natural and good desire, which is just the desire to be known and loved, the desire to be, to be careful. But when you get that kind of influence and you begin to believe uh, because thousands of people are listening to you preach every week that what you have to say is more important than what anyone else has to say. I, I've, I've seen the natural tendency for grace to diminish, even in ministries with possibly grace in the title. <laughs> um, and that is many to choose from, my friends. <laughs> um, and, and where all of a sudden it's now about we're getting it right, uh, and, and I always say that it's very possible. I, I never argue. Someone's like, like, we're doing it right. I'm like, I have been to plenty of churches that are absolutely orthodox, but it doesn't mean they aren't dead. Because if they're loveless, they have nothing. And, and if it's all about how the bad people out there are hurting, you know, hurting God's plan in, in the new Israel of America, where we got a big problem, you know? I always say, like, I'm not interested. Portland, I, I have to deal with the opposite extreme. I mean, when I preach in Orange County, it's like you're dealing with one thing. And you go to Portland, you're dealing with the other. And I don't want either. Um, I'm like, we, our progressives make liberals look conservative. And, uh, and it, it's insane. And the judgment in all of it, it's so fascinating that political correctness was developed as a means of, of showing respect and dignity to all ideas. And yet it is the most judgmental. Um, I was driving downtown with my kids. And, you know, they're products of Portland. And I go, I, I want, there's this rug store in downtown, it's called the Oriental Rug Store. That's the name of the store. And I'm like, I wanna to go to that Oriental Rug Store. Like, Hattie, Dad, you can't say that. I'm like, it's what the sign says. And she's like, oh, I didn't know. But you can't say that anyway, don't say it. That shouldn't be there. And I'm like, okay, whatever, that's fine. Uh, but then you get into the other place, like I go to Texas and speak and they're like, oh my gosh, Portland, I am so sorry that you're there. Uh, you know, you should move to God's country. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I don't know, man. I just kind of feel like people are kind of crappy everywhere. <laughs> and, and, it's a, and, and I'm probably the crappiest of all of them. So I'm just going to, I don't know, maybe just show grace and, uh, and, and believe that I don't know the whole story. And I think that this is, this is the fact. We never know the whole facts or the whole person. It's impossible to be impartial. Uh, no man is good enough to judge any man. Uh, and and we, don't, we don't know the story. We don't know the narratives that are, are driving people's lives. So you can have all kinds, you can watch the news. If you only watch one, you can watch CNN and have a very particular view of the world. You can watch Fox News and have a very particular view of the world. My dad watched Fox News endlessly in his trailer. This is the funniest thing. He's like going on about how much he, um, you know, he's, he's, he's on board with this and against this. And I'm like, and I just turned to him at one point. I'm like, dad, this is so dumb. You have never paid taxes in your life. I know for a fact. I know for a fact. Have you ever paid taxes? And he goes, it's none of your business. And then I'm like, have you ever voted in your life? And he's like, it's a waste of time. I'm like, okay, great. Well, don't talk to me about politics then because it's a dumb conversation. And so I judged him in, into silence. <laughs> 
but that doesn't work when a man's drinking a lot of vodka. So here's the thing. You know what's fascinating? Science has actually proved what Jesus said thousands of years ago. Um, and it, there's a book, if you guys have never read it, it's incredible. It's this guy, Daniel Kahneman. He's probably like the world's leading scientist around cognitive studies. Like he's, he's one of the guys that have been kind of the pioneer in cognitive behavioral therapy and basically why we make decisions. He won the Nobel Prize actually for economics because of his, his uh, research into decision-making around, he used Wall Street as a kind of a study case for how people make decisions. And, and his, whole, his whole look at, the, at how the brain works is so fascinating because he, he refers to the brain as basically there are two systems. There's the intuitive part, which is what we all function in. It's the ability to drive without thinking about driving. It's the ability to look at someone's face and know instantly what they're feeling or, or thinking just based upon their expression. But then there's the system two, which is the, which is, uh, um, the more complicated um, and the more difficult to tap side of the brain that's becoming less and less used in our current modern culture where everything is instantaneous. And that is that slow processing analytical side of the mind that actually is meant to be a restrainer to our more impulsive tendencies. And so, he, but he refers to the system two that, that um, the analytical side of our brains as a lazy controller because it takes so much energy. Uh, if you have to compute all day, um, it, they, they show like your body craves sugar. It literally depletes your brain of sugar if you're having to compute complex problems. So the difference of uh, looking at someone's face and knowing what they're feeling versus if I said, what is 46 times 222? is like immediately your brain just goes, yeah. Like, I mean, if you're like me, you're just like, I don't know and I don't care. Um, but it, but the very few people in the world could just toss out an answer, like very few people. It's a very small percentage. And, that, and what he says is because of our natural impulse to make decisions, the brain is so complex that it convinces itself that it has information that it does not. So when a complex problem is put before us, what our brain does is when we can't have the answer, our brain creates a different question that we can answer and makes us believe we've answered the more complex issue. You know what it's called? It's called the halo effect. And so the halo effect works like this. If you like the president's politics, you probably like his voice and his appearance as well. The tendency to like or dislike everything about a person, including things you have not observed, is known as the halo effect. They did research and they showed that men with weak chins were far less likely to be nominated into office. How funny is that? Like, because that's what we do. Like, someone, a candidate's on the screen, we look at it and we're like, they're like, they say a bunch of stuff that means nothing. And they're like, you're gonna vote for him? And you're like, and then you act like you know. You're like, I don't really like her dress. No, nope, I'm not gonna vote for her. But you think you actually have made a, a good decision. I think th this is very much, I think what he's describing is sin <laughs> and the blindness that comes over our minds. And it's our ability to, what I refer to as, uh, is to um, abuse grace in ourselves and refuse it for others. It, it is the essence of selective sanctification. It's spiritual snobbery. Um, snobbery. 1 Corinthians 8.2, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. We refuse grace in our judgment of others while abusing it in our judgment of ourselves. Isn't it fascinating when, when something horrible happens, we demand justice and we want it for everyone but ourselves. And I think this is the great problem of, the, of, of allowing anger, which is so dominant in our culture and in the church, is that it's like I see Christians so worked up over the secular age in which we live, and there's just, we need to rise up. Do you know the symbol of the clenched fist is not the symbol of the church? And yet the clenched fist is not just something that you see in a Black Lives Matters movie. It was a, it was a, a symbol used by by basically every communist regime through the 20th century. It goes back even further than that. It was always a sign of uprising against oppressors. It's a, it was a symbol of solidarity that we're going to rise up against those people that are pushing us down, taking advantage of us, hurting us. But I'm sorry, friends, that is never the spirit of the Christian. Jesus does not raise the clenched fist. He has the open hand with a nail in it. The only thing a clenched fist is good for is punching someone. You never use a clenched fist to hug anyone. 
And I, I think that this is something that we need to be thinking about. I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in talking about the ideologies behind movements that use this as a symbol. I'm talking about is the human nature is that we often feel like we are the victims of someone else's problems when the fact is is that the problem of the heart is the heart, or the heart, the problem of the, the problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. <laughs> it's the essence. It's the nature of sin. So what Jesus says here is so important for us. Don't look at the speck in your brother's eye. What, he's, what he actually is saying, and this is so fascinating, there is no speck in the brother's eye if you have a plank in your own. You're blind. So he's not actually even getting to the point where it's about, you know, if you want to help someone get out of something you see them doing, um, you got to do this first. No, he's saying you can't help them because you're blind you're not helping them at all. You're just judging them. You're focusing on what they're doing wrong, but you're not doing anything to help. But actually what you're seeing is your own sin reflected back on you. Um, and, and I think that this is a very important point. I often have been struck by this. It's kind of a known thing that pastors will preach against things that they themselves are struggling with the most. There was a pastor in Seattle that just would rail. Um, this is back in the late 90s, um, huge, huge church out on the east side. And I was, I just become a Christian. I was like 99. And I remember it was all over the news. He was like biggest church on it over in, in um, on the east side of Seattle. And he railed. He was just notorious for just like his whole pulpit was used to talk about the homosexual agenda. And then he was arrested in Florida for exposing himself to young men in a, in a, on a, at an amusement park. And it shows like his own sin, his own guilt, instead of dealing with it, confessing it, coming before the Lord, coming before people and saying, I need help. I'm a broken man. Instead, he takes it and he projects it onto the other. And this is what Gerard calls the scapegoat mechanism. And it's deeply problematic and it destroys the church. I mean, that church, it was rocked. It was thousands of people, people that he led to the Lord, good things that he did, but he had this whole unspoken uh, kind of this, this natural tendency toward hiding our sin because we as leaders have to present to the people an ideal that we ourselves can't keep. And what it does is it turns us into, instead of grace bearers, we become judgmental and blind. If you ignore your own brokenness long enough, I promise you, you will no longer know it's there. And this is why we should be very, very distrustful, very distrustful of those judgmental influence. What I pay attention to is when I feel judgmental towards someone, I immediately ask myself the question that Daniel Kenneman's book very much helped me on this. It's like, why am I, why am I judging this person? It, especially you go into a store and someone mistreats you. They're just rude to you. It's like, it's, you feel there's a righteous indignation. Like you can't treat me like that. Don't talk to me like that. And you want to, you want to push back. You want to, you want, you want justice, but that's not what the gospel is about. It's not about justice. It's about grace. Um, because God's yes over us on the cross is also his simultaneous no. His yes to us as sinners is also his judgment on sin in his son. And I think that this picture is important. I was getting into my car um, as the mass mandate was coming down. No one on the sidewalk, no one on the sidewalk in Portland. There's a woman parked across the street, and she's in she looks like every librarian in Portland. Um, and she, see, that was a judgmental statement. And, and she, she, you know, but I know because she, she had a reading is sexy sticker and a coexist sticker on the back of her car. It was very, I, the whole picture was painted for me perfectly in my mind. And I get in my car and she has her mask on and she yells at me across the street. It was like six months after the election was over. And she goes, Trump lost. I'm like, do I, what do I look like? I have a throat tattoo and a gold front tooth. Do I look like you're, you know, I wear white. I'm not even wearing, I don't even know what you're talking about, man. And I just wanted to rail. And then I was like, I stopped. And I was like, I'm like, I'm like, I, I know. I'm like, I'm like, how's your day going? I just tried to enter in. She wasn't having it. But the fact is, is I stopped myself from entering into like, she's just someone, something else is going on to make you yell that across the street. And I think that this is the power of the gospel at play. When we allow grace to be the guiding force, where grace is God's love that comes to the unlovable. And so I think that Jesus here is just simply saying this, when you remove the plank from your eye, 
instead of judging your brother and sister, you're going to be able to now help them. You know, you know what you've been forgiven of. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And I know what I've been forgiven of. I know the brokenness and the mixture in myself, and therefore I now have the power to enter into the brokenness of others because I understand what I am apart from Christ. And it neutralizes, it neutralizes my desire to ever elevate myself. Not that it doesn't happen, it does. But confess it quickly. <laughs> confess it quickly. Because humility is just strength under control. Meekness is that ability to, I know who God's created me to be. I, I cannot be more or less. Um, and I'm going to humbly come before him each day and say, Lord, I surrender to you. You empower me to live in ways that you know I can't live without you. And I'm going to blow it. And that's why I want to be gracious with people, because I know that that's what you are toward me every day. If you do not believe on your worst day that you are loved by Jesus, judgment will be the natural default setting because you'll go back to trying to prove your worth, which will then cause you to compare yourself to what others are doing. And this is the way that we make ourselves feel all right in the world. I think that this is a deep problem, which is what brings me to, if judgment is blindness, um, there's a different kind of judgment that Jesus moves into, and I'm gonna close here as insight. Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I truly believe that Jesus is playing a game here because he just got done saying, don't judge anyone. But now he's saying, don't give dogs and pigs what is holy. And in order to do that, you have to judge the person as a pig or a dog. It's a fascinating, <laughs> I'm just saying, because there is one other example, and I think Matthew uses it to, to actually solidify my belief here. Is I, I believe that Jesus here is talking, there is a judgment that is desperately needed in the Christian heart, and it's called discernment. It's the ability to know when to enter into something and when not to. I don't argue people into the kingdom of heaven. I do think that that is, that is wasting time. Um, but I, I, well, I think what Jesus is saying is, is you live out the gospel because keep in mind, he himself gave what is holy, to a broken world. And in Jesus' economy, if I was to ask you guys today, how many of you view yourself as evil? I mean, really, like view yourself as evil. You think yourself as an evil person. I am in California. Nobody. In Portland, we're like, I'm evil. <laughs> I'm evil. <laughs> um, no, well, here's the thing. Um, sadly to say, you actually are all evil. Um, uh, and, but the problem is, is that we have reserved evil as a word that, that is a, assigned to the worst. Evil is Jeffrey Dahmer, right? It's Ted Bundy. That's evil. Uh, evil is Hitler. But Jesus says something interesting to his disciples that I think should not be missed in the Sermon on the Mount. You, being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? He's not talking to the crowd. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, you being evil, which tells us that the worst that we are doesn't mean that we're not capable of good, but it also tells us that there are only two kinds of people in Jesus's economy. Evil people that said yes to his yes and evil people that said no to his yes. That's it. And when we realize that, then it creates a delicacy, I think what Jesus is causing people to do here is to stop and reflect on your own judgmental spirit and you're gonna, be, you're gonna have more insight into how to actually engage with people in a way that is helpful. Now, it is true that Jesus was si often would not answer. And who were the people that he was the least likely to engage with? It wasn't those pagans out there. And it's funny that he used the word, I looked up, I was just looking at pigs in the New Testament. It's only used like three times in the New Testament. It's when the demons are cast into the pigs. Uh, and then uh, I think that's actually it. I think it's just these two passages, those two passages, the only time that pigs are used. But we know from Old Testament that pig was an unclean animal. And Jesus is using that. It's a very offensive term to basically say to a Jewish crowd, like your, your pigs, your swine. And what he, I think he is trying to get us to understand is like, I can't help you until you actually realize you're unclean. Um, but then dogs is another interesting one. There's one other passage in Matthew where, that, where Jesus 
uses the, the language of dogs. And it's in Matthew 15. It's the Canaanite woman that comes to him whose daughter is being tormented by a demon. And she says, um, and, and he says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Uh, and it says, but he did not answer her a word. And so you notice that he, what does he say in, in the Sermon on the Mount? Be careful when you engage. Like, but Jesus isn't trying to be cruel to her. He's drawing out her faith because we know how the story ends. And, and what, is, what happens? The disciples are judging her. She's a Samaritan, and they're like, send her away. And then what does, Jesus, uh, is, uh, what does Jesus say? He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. And he answered, is it not, is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? And then she says this, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She is surrendering herself to the authority of Jesus. And Jesus is, is do you recognize your need for me? And what happens? Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. That picture of dogs generally is not applied to the common person. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, it's almost always applied to the religious who don't understand grace. Paul uses it in Philippians. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's the thing. We applaud, we applaud people that point at the broken world, the sins of others, and we say, that's the great God of man the great woman of God. It's like we love legalism. We love because it's tangible. We can define what is right and wrong. It creates a black and white grid. Good people do this. Bad people do this. But the economy of grace is far more complicated than that. It's actually far more simple. It's just God loves broken people. That's why he came. And if you could be good enough to save yourself, why did Jesus need to die on the cross? Which is why the cross has to be central. And I think that this is the point. Jesus said in Psalm, or I mean, the psalmist says, which is a messianic psalm in Psalm 22, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Jesus gave everything that was holy to the dogs. And I think that this shows us that the economy of grace is an upside down kingdom. So our, this is not a passage that gives us the right to not share the gospel with people that we find are unworthy because you're immediately falling back into the trapping of what he just got done saying not to do, judge. And so I close with this story. My dad comes to visit me the first time. My daughter was super excited. Hattie was five years old at the time and we're in the car driving um, down MLK and it was a week before my dad got there. I was very anxious. I hadn't seen him in over five years and I was worried about... I was embarrassed by him. He's an alcoholic. He didn't, there's no self-care. He always smelled bad. His clothes are always dirty. He has a filthy mouth. He insists on smoking 24-7. Like he made me pull over after I picked him up at the airport to smoke every five minutes, I swear, because um, I wouldn't let him smoke in my car. And Hattie says to me from the backseat at five years old, Daddy, I can't wait to meet Grandpa. I love him. And me being the good dad that I am said, how can you say you love him? You haven't even met him. <laughs> and she said, he's your dad, which means he's my grandpa, and I love him. And I was like, I said, well, you don't even know if he's a good person or not. <laughs> Once again, super, super dad moment. And she rebuked me. She silenced me out of the mouths of babes. Um, Hattie had a love for a man that had done nothing to earn her love. My dad gets there. The day he arrives, I, it was like an excruciating drive. He was in a horrible mood. He was so mad that they wouldn't let him smoke on the airplane. I'm like, did you really not know that that isn't allowed? <laughs> like, seriously, what is wrong with you? And we're, we're driving back, and he looks like a more weathered version of Willie Nelson, if you can imagine Willie Nelson more weathered. Um, and so we're dry, we're dry back and Hattie is waiting on the porch. Darcy said she waited on the porch for over a half an hour, half an hour on the porch for us to arrive, I pull up. She runs the car. My dad at this point had had a couple strokes and which I didn't know until I saw him and he had to walk with a walker. He was only, I think he was only like 64 at the time. Um, and, uh, we get out of the, Hattie runs the car, opens the door and she's like, hi, grandpa Al, um, can I help you? 
and uh, and she she reaches out her her hand, and my dad's like, "Well, hell, hello there, little lady." That's how my dad always talks. He has a really deep voice, and uh, he and my dad swore all the way up till before he died that when Hattie touched him, that he said he he referred. And my dad is not he was not like a woo woo spiritual person. He goes, "When she touched me, energy entered my body." <laughs> <laughs> which is very true of Hattie. She is like a force of nature. And she, she gives him uh, her hand, and, and he, he said in that moment, he was like, she was my, she was my little lady. And she, she stood by him, and he got his walker, and he's like, Grandpa's got to go kind of slow, honey. And, and she walks by him just patiently, gets all the way to the porch. Well, right before he came, Hattie also had a weird legalistic stint where she thought that cigarettes were evil. And I said, listen, honey, when grandpa gets here, he's going to smoke. And I promise you, he will want to smoke immediately before he goes into the house. And you have to promise me, because I know you are like your mother. Please don't say anything. Please don't say anything. Please don't say anything. And she says, she goes, well, does he know it's going to kill him? And I'm like, he does, and he does not care. <laughs> so don't say anything. Promise me. And she's like, I won't say anything. Sure enough, we get to the front porch. And Grandpa Al says, little lady, Grandpa's got to have a smoke. <laughs> and he sits down on his walker. He turns his walker around, sits down, and he pulls out his cigarette and lights it up. And Hattie's standing next to me, and she looks at, at the cigarette, and then she looks up at me, and I'm like, oh, man, all grace is gone now. And in one moment, she, uh, she looks down at his shoes, and she looks up, and she says, I love your boots, Grandpa. That is grace. That is grace. So much he could be judged for. But all he received from that little girl was a love that was not contingent on anything. There was no front loading. There was no back loading. I love you because I am love. That was my, my daughter was love embodied. I love, the, I love you because it's my nature to love. That is God's nature toward you guys. And this is why Jesus says, don't judge, because I have come. What did Jesus say? He said, the Son of Man did not come to judge the world, but to save it. And he says, it's not, I won't judge you in the future. It's my words, my word of love that you reject that will be your own judge. So just believe in grace, receive grace, and you will be conduits of grace. But I believe a lot of the times the reason we're judgmental is because we don't really in, our, in the, the depths of our soul believe that we are lovable. And I promise you, if you believe that Jesus loves you on your worst day and you know the reality of the sin within you and you're honest about that, this is the thing that makes the gospel so compelling and so beautiful to a world that is lost. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel of grace. And our prayer today is that we would recognize that your love, your one-way love toward us, is not based upon what we do for you, but it is based upon what you have done in fullness for us. Forgive us for the ways that we judge others and blind ourselves to the call of grace. Lord, we are not a people that are to live in a defensive posture, but we are to reflect the sacrifice of you, the King, to the world by allowing ourselves to be sacrificed, that they might come to know you. And I pray that we would be a people that lay down our lives, lay down our comforts, so that many more would come to know how beautiful you are. And I pray for anyone here that doesn't know that they are loved, that struggles believing that, you are really, that you're really there, that you care about them. I pray that they would just simply ask you, Jesus, would you show your love to me? This is not a selfish prayer because we are told that the Holy Spirit has poured out the love of God in our hearts. And it is not only the ability to know we are loved, but it is then that gives us the ability to be conduits of that love in spite of us. And so Jesus, may you fill my brothers and sisters in this community and that that love would drive them out. The power of the Spirit would drive them out into the community, a community that is, this is a city filled with millions of people that desperately need to know that on their worst day they are loved for it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so we pray these things in your precious name, Jesus, and we declare those words, Jesus is Lord. Say that with me, church. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you for bringing that.
so much so needed and i just want to as we we close off with communion every week it's an opportunity to, to tangibly remember the price that was paid for that grace um, the price that was paid that we might be able to on our worst day have not a shadow of a doubt that you are wildly loved by god and that unlocks us to be able to love without judgment and so and it, i just want to encourage if you're someone in here that's been that you're sitting you're hanging out um and you've been checking out this whole jesus thing and you're sensing like i'm sensing a call i'm sensing that tap on my heart and i can engage my analytic faculties to explain away all the problems i have with it or to um, just pause and say, I don't, I don't really want to do this because X, Y, and Z. I want to say respond, and that might look different for a lot of different people, but I really want to encourage you, if you are responding to Jesus, you are responding to love and love only. And it's a freedom, and it's a journey you will figure out as you go. You will learn, you will grow, you'll make mistakes, you'll think you understand something that maybe you misunderstand, and it's all drowning in grace. And so I just want to encourage you, if that's, if that's you, uh, talk to someone who brought you. Come talk to me, talk to Josh, talk to any of the crew here. Uh, we'd love to just walk with you, take steps with you on that journey. But I just want to say, like, there is no reason to not respond to something so deep and real and you know it's real. Like, it echoes in your heart and soul. I just want to put that out there for an opportunity. And as we close, here's how we do it. Ron will put on some music, just going to kind of play through the speakers. We have communion here, the little juice packet uh, that, that represents the blood of Christ that was paid to deal with our sin and to truly reunite us with the Lord. And the little wafer represents his body that was given for us. And so we invite you to uh, take in that at your own time. Um, connect with one another. And again, if you're in that place, whether you're a believer and you're like, I need to jump out of this judgment trap I'm in, or you're someone who's just been exploring this Jesus thing and you want to respond today, I just want to encourage you, don't let the moment pass you by. We're not getting a dime out of this. We're not getting extra crowns in heaven. We are truly saying we have, we have experienced it ourselves and there's just no turning back when you've experienced love and love only. So I want to encourage you, if that's you, respond. Um, so, Ron, thanks so much for putting some music on. I'm, Lord, thank you for this morning. And we again, I, I just pray that um, the, the brokenness that, Lord, I walk around with, Father, as it, as it blinds me and, and causes me to judge other people and to think of them in ways that do not correspond with how you see them, God, I would just repent of that again and again, 50 times a day and say, sorry, Lord, I am a jackass. I'm sorry for that thought. I'm sorry for that response. And I respond in grace. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So feel free at your own leisure. Uh, take of the communion and uh, hang out a little bit. Say hi to some folks. <laughs>